Some travelers go to great lengths to reach once-in-a-lifetime destinations. And if you're going all that way with the camera, you owe it to yourself to bring back photos that do the place justice. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up, photographer Mike Torrey offers his perspective on capturing the essence of Machu Picchu high in the Andes. There was just this interaction and almost a conversation there with the stones and the atmosphere. And closer to home, travel writer Zora O'Neill shares what's unique about New Mexico, where the landscape, architecture, history, traditions, and cuisine all paint a scene you won't find anywhere else in the USA. Fried dough, there's nothing miraculous about it, and yet somehow in New Mexico it's transformed. And our Turkish friend Meli Saval explains why modern Turkey's founder, Ataturk, is still so revered more than 70 years after his death. He was against using religion for fundamentalist reasons and for politics. Come along for a fascinating hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We're getting better acquainted with some amazing places today on Travel with Rick Steves. In a bit, we'll learn the story behind one of Turkey's traditions and find out what gives New Mexico its own very special spice. But let's start with a photographer who captured the misty soul of Machu Picchu with his camera. We're at 877-333-RICK. And by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. One of the most enigmatic and wondrous sights on the planet must be Machu Picchu. We're joined now by Mike Torrey, who's written a book or photographed a book called Stone Offerings, Machu Picchu's Terraces of Enlightenment, talking and showing uh, about how this site, this, this incredible mountaintop site in Peru, 500 years after it was built, still takes people to places they've never been. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Great to be here. We've all seen pictures of Machu Picchu, but tell us just very briefly, what is it, where is it, and how do you get there? Machu Picchu is in Peru. It's approximately 50 miles from the city of Cusco, and it was built by the Inca approximately 500 years ago. It was abandoned approximately 100 years later uh, when the Spaniards came in and conquered the Inca, and then it disappeared for 400 years underneath the canopy of the rainforest. And then it was rediscovered in 1911 by uh, Hiram Bingham, the Yale University professor. So it's coming up on its uh, centennial next uh, 2011. And it's pretty much been looted of anything other than the stone. So you've got this evocative uh, stone ruins 8,000 feet above sea level, basically. Is that right? Yeah, I'm not sure how much was looted, but it was mostly uh, buried underneath the rainforest. And when they tore it back, uh, much of it was still there. Very nice introduction to the book by Marie Arana. It gives a good background on the uh, sort of the treasure trove that they found, and all of a sudden you've got uh, Incan artifacts popping up at universities all over Europe and the United States. Marie wrote a beautiful introduction. She was born in Peru and now lives in the U.S. Yeah, there is a lot of conflict over the possession of some of the artifacts that were brought back from uh, the original discovery at Yale. And apparently Peru may be getting some of them back in these years ahead of us. They're they're talking about uh, giving them back to their rightful culture. They are basically uh, negotiating, sometimes not as uh, friendly as you might think, but Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so hopefully they'll get back to their owners. Not many sites deserve an entire coffee book. But this one does. I I, I so enjoyed paging through it. Tell me why you chose Machu Picchu and what it was like to capture it uh, with your camera. I had always wanted to go to Machu Picchu since elementary school doing a report on Peru and learned about it then. had been in the back of my mind for a long time on the the so-called bucket list. And I had an opportunity to go with a group of architects and architecture students as sort of an architectural tour. And there were three days at Machu Picchu where I could go and just absorb myself in the photography there. So it really came out, the book came out of uh, that very first trip in June of 2007. I was there at the solstice. I went back as a book started developing and went at the December solstice in 2007. So what did you want to get on your second visit that you didn't get in three days of photographing it on your first visit? Well, the solstice is a very sacred time for the Inca. The Temple of the Sun has their eastern window aligned with the solstice. The Inca, they were nature-based spirituality, but they would worship the sun. And so as the sun moves across the sky in the seasons, it stops at the solstice. And if it keeps going, they essentially would lose their god. So they would mark it in their architecture and celebrate it. In the book, there's a picture of the sun coming through the window onto the carved stone flooring. So you were able, while you were there during the two different solstices, to actually test the celestial calendar truth of this, and it actually you saw it work? I saw it work, yeah. It was, wow. it was spectacular, really beautiful. 
Now, you say that this is where natural environment and man-built environment worked well together. What do you mean by that? I'm an architectural photographer, and so I am used to or focused on connecting spaces and showing relationships. And one thing I had never really experienced before was this profound connection of what was man-made with the natural environment. And there it was very it was very powerful. And so that's what really pulled me into the experience of photographing it. There are a lot of people there at, at Machu Picchu, and I photographed it as much as I could without any people in the pictures because I felt that that was more true to what was really extraordinary about Machu Picchu. You've got another dimension, which is this sort of mystical fusion of earth and sky at Machu Picchu. There seemed to be this symbiosis with the carved stone walls and all the monuments that they have there, the power of the constantly changing light. It's in a cloud forest, they call it. Constantly watching the changes in the light and as it moved across the sky or the clouds or even in the rain. There was just this interaction and almost a conversation there with the stones and the atmosphere. And then you just seems there's a holiness to the place, and it's kind of where holy meets natural at the same time. It just gives another dimension to the magic of this place. What was the impact on you? What, what was your feeling about any sort of spirituality of the place? I didn't personally have any uh, epiphanies when I was there, if you will. It was more just being absorbed and drawn into what was different. There was something that was fascinating. I'd read a lot of books and gotten a lot of information about Machu Picchu, but when I got there, I just basically wanted to sort of set that aside, if you will, and just let the experience unfold for me. And so I guess there certainly was a spiritual dimension, but it was more about just experiencing it and trying to reveal it in the images that I was creating. With all that the archaeologists have learned, it's still a mystery. The Inca didn't have any written language, so there's still a lot of mystery about it. And so, again, it was just focusing on what I could see and, and trying to make the book about the experience of being there and trying to make it without all the people that are there. Enigma is certainly a word that comes to mind when you look at or experience Machu Picchu. I know from my work, uh, when we're uh, making the TV shows, uh, my photographer says he's chasing the light. And at Machu Picchu, mm -hmm. there must be a special light. As a photographer, were you aware of that? I was really fascinated with the terraces there. They were its signature, and they spoke of the relationship between nature and what was man-made. And I really did fall in love with the light that fell on that. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Mike Torrey, and Mike has written a beautiful coffee table book called Stone Offerings, Machu Picchu's Terraces of Enlightenment. Mike's website is machupichubook.com. Carol's on the phone in Huntington, New York. Carol, thanks for your call. Do you have a comment for Mike? Um, as an amateur photographer, when you go through that first gate and you get into Machu Picchu and you are overwhelmed by the beauty of everything that you see. You take, obviously, the usual pictures. You do Machu Picchu, Wanu Picchu, you do the Sun Gate, you do whatever. But then how do you prioritize if you only have a limited time of what are the most important things to take? Or do you go by your gut instinct, Mike, and just look at the things like pictures of flowers between rocks? and the view from the Sun Gate of the Orobamba River. Um, I'm just curious, like, how do you prioritize these things when you're in front of so much beauty? Well, the first thing to do, if you can, is try and give yourself some time. And so I had, for the first trip, three days to explore. So I, I took a little bit of pressure off of, of that, and I right. just kept myself open to what was uh, there to be revealed and focusing on the light. There are a lot of pictures of Machu Picchu out there, and so I didn't want to take the obvious pictures through the door window framing Picchu Mountain. As a photographer, I would just be aware of what was uh, interesting and captivating, but also somewhat different. And I think you just need to really, as you said, follow your, your intuition and, and not make it an overwhelming thing about it. I think the biggest thing that I needed to do when I was at Machu, we had a day and a half there, um, was to put the camera down at certain points, too, and just say, I'm not going to be able to capture it all. I need to be reverent here, and I need to understand 
what it is I'm doing here and why I'm here. Yeah, I definitely believe in, in setting the camera down, although I didn't do that very much because I was <laughs> really uh, had a short opportunity. You're on a mission there. Hopefully the book gives people that opportunity to set their cameras down and look at these images here in the book. Carol, thanks for your call. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. And Suzanne's on the phone in Bryant Pond, Maine. Suzanne, thanks for your call. Yes, I'd like to ask a question about how you capture the essence of an area uh, with just a little four-by-six frame. We do a lot of traveling, and it, we find it very difficult to come back and show the pictures and really be able, you know, for friends and family to see and feel where we've been. You need to realize that you're making decisions about what you're including in the frame. Start deciding what is the most important part and what is taking away from it. And that, I think, will help begin to tighten up what you're trying to show. And you need to ask yourself, well, what am I trying to show here? And for me, I just was looking at it. I'd set my camera on the tripod and, and say, all right, what is extraordinary about this place? And is it coming through? And then I would refine that. So it's a little more of a methodical approach and saying, oh, trying to include, you know, 360 degrees of a, of a particular view mm. isn't going to be that compelling of a picture. All of us, you know, amateur photographers out here, do you have any specific hints that you can give us that uh, would really enhance our photography? Follow what you're passionate about for sure, but, but then I think it's just basically looking at what you have framed in your camera and start deciding what is included. So look at your old photos and say, why isn't this working? What is important and what isn't important? And then start working your way towards keeping just the important stuff in. Okay. You know, Suzanne, I know the frustration when you come home and you it's not quite as, as vivid or magical as your personal experience. And I, I've been taking photographs for decades, and I can't remember coming home and looking at my slideshow for the first time and being happy with it because mm -hmm. it's just not what I was... It's not the experience. But then you warm up to it later, and I've, I always find that... the the photographs become treasures. But at first, you're, you're reminded it's not the real thing. Right. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you very much. Fascinating experience, Mike, and a beautiful book. Having captured Machu Picchu with your camera, what's the lesson you take home? The book's called Stone Offerings because I felt that this place was not strictly an historic or archaeological relic, that it had something to say to us about our own built environment that we love green spaces in our urban environment, and this is like the perfect example. And so in terms of capturing, find what is important to you and what moves you and allow the site to present whatever it has to present to you and try not to get too caught up in capturing the perfect photograph. Having paged through your book, I feel like I've climbed through the site at Machu Picchu. I don't feel like I've seen it but I've been inspired to actually go there and experience it myself. So thank you for your work and best wishes. Thank you very much, Rick. Next up, we'll explore the home of the USA's best ancient sites and some fun modern ones, too, in New Mexico. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. When I think of the southwest of the United States, I think of vast canyons, and I think of Native American culture. I think of history, great cuisine. We're joined today by Zora O'Neill, who writes guidebooks to New Mexico, Santa Fe, Taos, and Albuquerque. And we're going to learn specifically about New Mexico. Zora, thanks for joining us. Oh, hi, Rick. Very nice to be here. We have an image of southwest 
West America. But New Mexico is a, a unique part of that. How would New Mexico be unique within our image of the Southwest? Well, I would say New Mexico certainly has all the scenery you expect in the Southwest, the mesas, red sandstone, high mountains, deserts, and jackrabbits hopping around. Uh, what makes New Mexico really distinct, in my mind, is the particular cultural blend there. You have, of course, Native Americans who've been living there forever. You have Spanish culture that has been existing there for four or five hundred years. And a lot of that is very distinct from Mexican culture that is also very prominent in New Mexico. So all these things sort of fit together. And not to overlook the contribution of the hippie culture in New Mexico, much more recent, but very much part of the blend. Now, why you? I know Moon Publications prides itself in the quality of their work, and you are Ms. New Mexico. <laughs> why would you be the right person to write this? You make it sound like I'm a beauty queen. It's very nice. <laughs> uh, no, I haven't won any pageants. I grew up in New Mexico. We moved there when I was a year old because my mother decided L.A. was no place to raise a child and New Mexico was. So I grew up there, and I honestly, I just didn't appreciate how special New Mexico was until I left, when I left for college. So it was when I started going back as a visitor that I realized what a sort of strange and amazing and different place it was. And so it was a great opportunity to write these guidebooks and tell people what I was freshly appreciating about my home state. Now, you are also somewhat of a foodie. In fact, you have a, a website called rovinggastronome.com. Uh, yes. you're, you're into cuisine, and I know aficionados love New Mexican cuisine. What's, what's the deal with New Mexican cuisine? Oh, well, speaking of things I didn't appreciate until I left, you know, my first year away at college, I actually formed a club with the two other people from New Mexico so that we could import special foods and eat them together. Uh, what is great about New Mexico is there is a chili pepper that is grown basically only there. Hatch green chili is probably the best known across the United States. It's served either green or they let it ripen and then dry it for red chili. Now the official question of the state of New Mexico, I don't know if other states have official questions, but New Mexico has an official question, and that is red or green, which is what... <laughs> What your server asks you at the restaurant, what you want on your enchiladas or your burrito or whatever, do you want red or green? And actually, most people don't even have to be asked that question. They're ready with the answer. So that's how you can sort of huh. What's your fit answer? right in in New Mexico when you go is know the answer right off the bat. Um, people always wonder which one is spicier, and it really just depends on the year and what batch the restaurant is using and things. So you can always ask at the restaurant which one is spicier. Uh, the green has this great sort of vegetable flavor to it, but also very spicy. And the red is this really earthy, almost toasted flavor that really there's nothing like it. Even if you go just over to the border close to Texas, you can tell that like the chili starts petering out and getting paler and wimpier. And when you go over to Arizona, it disappears entirely. It's really something that's distinct in the state. So I got to ask you, red or green? <laughs> it depends. It totally depends on what I'm eating. If I want some chicken enchiladas, I usually get that with green. Well, it depends. If you can't decide, you can always say Christmas, which means both. And they put like green on one side and red on the other. Christmas. That's great. So, you can yes. have Christmas all year long in New Mexico. <laughs> exactly. It's heaven for the indecisive. I love in your book, you talk mm. about exploring New Mexico with your nose alone. Tell us what you mean mm. by that. Again, like things I took for granted when I was there, I would say it changes with each season. And I, I love being there in the fall because that's when the green chili has just been picked. And overnight uh, in every supermarket parking lot, somebody sets up with a big barrel roaster and a pickup truck and a truck bed full of green chilies. And you buy them by the giant burlap sack. And they roast them right there in the barrel roaster, make the skin on them all blistery. And it gives off this incredible, gorgeous, spicy aroma that just, I feel like it fills the whole state everywhere you go. It is deeply unpleasant for anybody who's maybe allergic. So <laughs> if you're very sensitive, maybe don't go to New Mexico in the fall. But for anybody else, anybody who loves spicy food, that is a great time to be there. And then uh, wood smoke in the wintertime is very distinctive. Everybody burns pinon, which is the local sort of scrubby pine that grows, and that has a great great scent. 
And in the springtime, lilacs bloom all over Santa Fe and Albuquerque especially. And in the summer, it's rainstorms. In good years, every afternoon in the summer, there's a very strong thunderstorm and just the smell of the ozone and the storm coming in. It's really, really distinctive. I'm Rick Steves. Today we're talking about New Mexico with Zora O'Neill. Zora writes the Moon Handbooks to New Mexico and the Moon Handbook to Santa Fe, Taos, and Albuquerque. Zora, I love the chapter in your New Mexico book on the Wild West. Maybe it's just a guy (laughs) thing, but I've got these images of the Wild West. Take me on a week in the Wild West. Oh, there are some really, really great spots you can visit. I mean, New Mexico, historically, so many range wars and sort of cattle you know, shenanigans and and things like that. I can't even begin to get into the details. But there are some wonderful places throughout the state that feel totally untouched. You can still, like, swagger in through the sort of swinging saloon doors in some of these places, and you're blinking in the dim light, and there are these guys hunched over the bar that look like they were probably sitting there since, like, 1860. It's kind of a time warp thing, and it's wonderful. The Santa Fe Trail is probably... The core of a lot of historical sites up northeast of Santa Fe is Fort Union. That's a big old fort that used to guard the Santa Fe Trail and provide a little a little respite for the wagon trains just as they got close to Santa Fe. And when you go out there, it's all windswept and sort of empty and slowly, slowly crumbling. And you can look out and you can see the old ruts that the wagon trains left. So you look out sort of level with the ground, and you see these these ruts that were worn over hmm. decades of trade, which is fascinating. And then there are these great old historic hotels. One of my favorites is up in a little town called Cimarron, which is northeast again of Taos. Uh, there's a hotel there called the St. James Hotel, which hosted pretty much every gunslinger you can think of. And, you know, there are the obligatory bullet holes in the ceiling, and there's a big old stuffed mountain lion, and everything is is sort of old polished wood. And uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful place, and they've they've kept it up fabulously. So there's a, a the ambiance of the 19th century survives and, and if you know where to go. And uh, tell me about your favorite ghost town. Tough call. The one that that's closest to me that I know best from growing up is a little town called Madrid, which is not to be confused with Madrid in Spain. That's how you can always tell the visitors is they're like, is this the road to Madrid? And you're like, actually, no. Uh, Madrid is midway between Albuquerque and Santa Fe on the back road, Highway 14. It's also called the Turquoise Trail. And um, Madrid was a town built by a coal mining company, and it was basically just a company town for a very long time. And then the coal industry pretty much collapsed in New Mexico, and the whole place went empty. And when I was a kid, there were a few sort of weird people who had squatted in some of the houses and were kind of setting things up there. And now, you know, 30 years later, it has developed into a full-fledged sort of art scene, tons of galleries up there. It's still off-the-grid living in a lot of cases. If you ask for a public toilet there, you will be sent to a porta potty I mean, the plumbing is, is maybe not back from the dead, but it's a great town, and it's kind of a great place to see. How do you pronounce it again? Madrid. Madrid. But that's an off-the-grid, artsy um, ghost town that's been inhabited by the artistic community. Is there just sort of a vacant, dusty, evocative 1800s, where, where's Billy the Kid kind of place? Oh, there are probably a lot. If you go down to Truth or Consequences, which is another interesting town in the way it has remade itself, it was pretty much empty. It's a town that was once famous for its hot springs, and it was called Hot Springs, and called itself Truth or Consequences as a publicity stunt. And now it's kind of a hip little place. And if you start there as a base, there's a little driving route heading northwest from there. Zora, when you think New Mexico, you think Indian culture. And I looked at the map in your book, and it seems like the north is just full of Indian reservations. In fact, apparently, what, what is there, a quarter of a million uh, Native Americans are, are living in northern New Mexico. What's your best advice for a, a traveler to experience the Native American culture? Well, I would first check in. In Albuquerque, there's a place called the Indian Pueblo Cultural Center. And I would just check in with them and ask what the schedules are for ceremonial dances. If you can time your visit to see one of the ceremonial dances at any one of the pueblos, it's a really 
fascinating time to be there, and it's a really wonderful thing to see that you really can't see anywhere else. So I would start with them and just check with the schedule. People should probably know that if you're going to Taos, the Taos Pueblo, which is beautiful even when there isn't a dance going on, the Taos Pueblo is an amazing, just amazing relic. It's all adobe built over centuries, and the core of it is still very off the grid. I mean, not intentionally. It has just never been on the grid. It is untouched by time. So you should definitely go to Taos Pueblo, but it is closed for a couple months in the spring, and that schedule shifts every year. So just when you're planning your trip, keep that in mind for timing. You know, of course, we'll go to Taos, and it'd be great to see an Indian kind of festival and a, a big powwow or whatever. But I mean, these people are living there just day in and day out. And as a traveler, if you wanted to just visit these communities and eat in a diner and talk to some people... Uh, what's the best approach? Is a traveler welcome? Is a traveler comfortable? Is it is it a big tourist trap, or is it the real thing and travelers can venture into it? Well, I'd say it depends completely on the Pueblo. Uh, some are very private and really don't welcome visitors except on feast days, and others are open all the time and you can sort of come in. There are definitely private spaces within each Pueblo. A lot of tourists, I think, start out saying, oh, well, I don't want to go for a big fiesta. I want to go you know, when I'm not with a bunch of other tourists. And this is a little misguided because, in general, I would say a lot of Pueblos appreciate the quiet and appreciate their privacy. So if you do go on a feast day, it's actually a more open time. You know, doors are open. You might be invited into people's homes. Whereas if you visit on sort of a just, you know, some random Wednesday, you're really only going to find a couple of people selling you jewelry. And, you know, that's about it. One exception I would recommend, actually, if you can't time your trip to coordinate with any particular dance or feast day, look into Zuni Pueblo, where there is actually a hotel. It's called the Inn at Holona. It's really one of the only places you can stay overnight in a Pueblo. Yeah, but basically, uh, you got to be careful not to be an intruder when you wander around these places, and you're welcome when there's a, a, a public kind of festival. Yes, yes. All right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Zora O'Neill about New Mexico, and Zora writes the Moon Handbooks to New Mexico. She's got the Moon New Mexico Handbook and Moon Guidebook to Santa Fe Taos and Albuquerque. We have John on the phone in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, who's got some thoughts on uh, Indian art. John, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick and Zora. How are you? Doing well. Great. Good. My favorite place in Santa Fe is the International Folk Art Museum. I can't... I've been in there... Six or seven times, I still can't see the entire collection. Hundreds <laughs> of thousands of items. Now, why? what is it that's attractive uh, to you about that? Well, it has collections from over the world. It has European folk art. Oh, so this it's, is like indigenous art from all over the world. Does it relate to Indian right. art? Yes, it has a Spanish collection and a Latin American collection. It has religious art, textiles, costumes. Rick, it's, it's like the Louvre of New Mexico. Whoa, whoa. Zora Zor will back me up on this. I totally can. It is a boggling place. The main display hall at the museum is folk art from every part of the globe, and it's it's arranged in this incredibly meticulous way. So, you know, you're looking at an Appalachian quilt, and then you're seeing Chinese musical instruments, and somehow it all fits together, and you start seeing these connections between these different folk traditions, and it's really, really, really amazing. And uh, they do special exhibits every so often as well, which are incredibly in-depth things on a given topic. So, John, you're so uh, excited about this, the Louvre of folk art, um, and it's the Museum of International Folk Art in Santa Fe. Tell me, John, your feeling about how that resonated with your whole experience with the Native American culture. I mean, is that just a coincidence that it's in Santa Fe, or is it there because this is kind of the cultural capital of American Indian culture? I, I, th- I think it was just uh, there were two tremendous collections that started it. I know one was the Gerard collection. I don't know the other one. Mm-hmm. But they just, I mean, Rick, it is just unbelievable hmm. when you go in there and just to see things. And, you know, for the different tribes, the the belts, the clothing, the turquoise jewelry that's in there. Wow. In those uh, it probably It probably gives you a respect for indigenous cultures, both in the United States and around the world. Oh, they're going back hundreds of years with what they consider to be art. And then you look a- across the ocean to which the other Pacific or Atlantic oceans mm-hmm. to what Europeans and then Asians thought to be art. I love that notion when you're traveling that you're meeting one nomadic group here and you realize they have an affinity 
for nomadic groups across the planet that are a parallel kind of world that people who are not nomadic would not really relate to, and the same thing with indigenous peoples and so on. And, and I suppose going to the Museum of International Folk Art in Santa Fe, you could celebrate that. My children love it. The adults love it. Teenagers love it. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's, it's, I can't tell you, you can spend all day in there. (laughs) He's not exaggerating. It is really, it's totally absorbing. John, I think you need some, uh, are you red or green when it it comes to the uh, cuisine? (laughs) I don't understand. What's your favorite chili, red or green? (laughs) Oh, I love the, I love the red ristras, but I love my, uh, pork smothered in green chili. And Zora, I hope Mm. you'll comment later about Frito pie, because I I have a real big mm. craving for that. Oh, good. Hey, John, well, that's (laughs) that's reason to hang on. We've got to go here, John. Thanks so much for your call. Thank you very much. Thank you. Zora, boy, it sounds like when you go to New Mexico, you get an incredible dose of indigenous culture. You get all sorts of natural wonders. You get your Wild West, dusty saloon kind of action. And we're always coming back to that cuisine. Uh, The last caller was so interested in Frito. What is Frito? Ah, frito pie. There's a little diner on the plaza in Santa Fe. It looks like a gift shop, but there's a diner counter in the back that claims to have invented frito pie. I think they might be lying, say some people in Texas. It's ongoing rivalry. Frito pie is basically just a bag of Fritos cut open and chili ladled on top and cheese and chopped onions if you want them. And Mm. it's the greatest little to-go snack. Super, super savory. Hmm. Uh, so if you're in Santa Fe, step in there and have a Frito pie. Can you make that when you get out of state, or do you need the local ingredients? <laughs> well, you really want the local red <laughs> chili <laughs> to give the chili the kick, so there is a secret ingredient. It sounds like it's uh, the frustration of trying to make a bruschetta when you get home. It's just not quite right. <laughs> right, gotta, you're gotta like, go back but to it's Italy. just, just a slice pie. of bread. <laughs> and of course, when you think Fritos? New Mexico, you think sopapilla. Yes, yes, yeah. Fried dough, I mean, there's nothing miraculous about it. And yet somehow in New Mexico, it's transformed. There are these little puffy, hollow, pillow-shaped things of fried dough. And any New Mexican restaurant you go to, they give them to you on the side with whatever you order. And you can either eat them with your main dish as a savory thing to sort of, they really help cut the chili heat if you need it. Mm -hmm. Or you can have them for dessert and they give you a little bottle of honey to Ah. squeeze honey on. So mm. We're talking New Mexico with Zora O'Neill, author of the Moon Handbook to New Mexico. We'll investigate the extraterrestrial hotbed of Roswell, New Mexico, in just a minute as we continue with Zora O'Neill, exploring the wacky and wonderful sights and events in New Mexico. And we'll also get a lesson in the enduring importance of Ataturk, the founder of the Turkish Republic, and what Turks do to honor him each November 10th. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Zora O'Neill writes the Moon Guidebooks to New Mexico and authors books on other topics for Lonely Planet and Rough Guides. She also runs a foodie website at rovinggastronome.com. She's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. We're taking your calls at 877-333-7425. And by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. There's a fascinating chapter in your book on New Mexico titled Weird and Wonderful. And, of course, you've got uh, Roswell and... uh, the UFOs there. Um, Don in Albany, as a matter of fact, emailed us, and he says, uh, uh, as a public information officer at Walker Air Force Base in Roswell from 64 to 67, UFO sightings were reported to me after going to the command post. I'm familiar with locals who had information on the UFO incident. This lives on when you think about uh, Roswell and so on. There's actually a UFO center, right? What's, uh, What's the deal with the UFOs in New Mexico? Yeah, I don't know if there's something special in the atmosphere, but it is a constant topic. You will talk to people who seem, you know, totally normal, and they may be, and they say they've recently been abducted by aliens. I, <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. It, it's definitely a thing. Down in Roswell is sort of the center of it because there was the big crash in the 1950s, and there is a huge center there devoted to it. And 
the the town has capitalized on this in a hilarious way. Like even the light posts in Roswell are sort of painted to look oh, like little alien heads. You had a photograph of the McDonald's that looks like a flying saucer. <laughs> yes. yes, I mean it's okay. So when it's you're traveling totally in New Mexico, it's, there is a serious center there that explores this. I mean, you got the Loch Ness monster yep. in Scotland, and they and are Roswell. very, very. I mean, there's so much documentation in there; yeah. it kind of makes your head <laughs> hurt. And yet, outside, there's this sort of kitschy thing surrounding it. It's it's really fascinating. Up in Aztec, New Mexico, there's another supposed crash site, and you can talk to people up there about it. It's definitely – it's a good conversation starter, yeah, I was gonna if say, anything. Good way to connect yeah. with, the, with the locals. Now, uh, yes, yes. you also have the, um, the whole Los Alamos thing and the, and the first atom bomb and all of this. What, what kind of sightseeing does that offer people? Well, it's interesting. There's, uh, you can go to the original bomb test site, the Trinity site. It's open twice a year. You can go visit that. Uh, if you can't time your visit for that, you can go up to Los Alamos, which is sort of fascinating because it's a company town. There's not much to see. There's a little museum there. But once you're up there, you can imagine very easily what it must have been like to work up there. Hmm. The people, the scientists who were up there were just totally shut off from everything and living in this totally secret place that no one knew existed. And it's a beautiful location. And then it's also kind of funny because there's like Bikini Atoll Road and things like that. So... It's very much like living in the moment. Is there actually a center or a museum where they let curious people learn about this whole exciting adventure? There, in, in there the is. Temple? In Los Alamos, there's a place called the Bradbury Science Center, and there's exhaustive displays on, on the atom bomb. And also in Albuquerque, there's a very good museum. So there's so much to see, so many dimensions to New Mexico then. So if we're interested in the history of the atom bomb, you can certainly do that. And to make people's um, scheduling a little easier, can we just say Four Corners sounds intriguing, but you travel a long way to get to the place where four states come together, and then you kind of go, why did I come here? <laughs> yes, there is a little bit of that. In my book, I basically say, if you want a reason for a scenic drive, that's one, but I would not, you know, plan your whole day around it. <laughs> okay. And uh, Sheila in Shreveport, Louisiana, emailed us and said she took uh, senior citizen parents visiting from India on a hot air balloon ride. They initially felt it was an outrageous idea, but after landing safely back in Albuquerque, they felt it was uh, one of the experiences of a lifetime. Uh, Zora, tell us about the—you uh, think about hot air balloons when you think about Albuquerque. Yes, definitely. There's a huge international fiesta there every year. It's the biggest event in Albuquerque and there's a great museum. If you're not there during the Balloon Fiesta, definitely go to the Balloon Museum. It's amazingly inspiring. I kind of take hot air balloons for granted, and I went there a couple mm. of years ago, and I was filled with inspiration again for the mm. whole concept of it. And you can definitely, as this woman suggested, you can definitely arrange to have your own balloon flight. It's an amazing way to see the scenery. So the Hot Air Balloon Festival, we've all seen photographs of it. The, the sky is just colored with, uh, it's like jellyfish or something like that in the sky. <laughs> and a uh, great time for photographers. But uh, if you're not a photographer and if you're not a hot air balloonist, do you find it was still an inspiration and a wonderful new area to delve into? Yeah, the spirit of exploration with these things. I mean, the people who've flown balloons long distances. And the museum covers this stuff in great detail, and it really is fascinating in a way I didn't appreciate, even though so that's you know, a, I've been around what them is this whole time. basically so. just the Hot Air Balloon Museum in Albuquerque. Yes, and it's on the Balloon Fiesta grounds. Okay. So, um, it's an annual fiesta, right? Yes, it's usually what? about the first two weeks in every October. All right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Zora O'Neill, who uh, really digs New Mexico. Uh, she's uh, raised there, and she shares her enthusiasm with her guidebooks. She writes the Moon Handbooks to New Mexico and the Moon Handbook to Santa Fe, Taos, and Albuquerque. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Katrina's on the line in Sugarland, Texas. Katrina, thoughts or comments on New Mexico? You know, in New Mexico, there's something that's really different, and it's kind of the concept of time. Um, stores randomly close. Uh, we drove from Taos all the way to Imbuto Station to try to go to dinner, and they decided to close an hour early so they could paint the kitchen. Uh, and this was in the height of uh, tourist season, too. It was in the middle of August. Um, and we were even in Santa Fe, and we were stopping by a store that we usually try to visit and left our phone number because it was two hours after opening time and they still hadn't opened. And I actually received a phone call from the store owner last week, and this is three weeks later since we've been there, asking if we wanted to come to the store. Uh, <laughs> so it's just really kind of interesting that it's you know, a completely different concept of time. So, Zora, what's your experience with that? 
Uh, yeah, that's definitely true. I would say New Mexicans often, you know, value their own schedules over what it might say on the door. So proceed with caution, call ahead. I'm sorry about the Embudo station. That's exactly the sort of thing I'm afraid of happening to people when they're in New Mexico. But yeah, call ahead. And if you show up and things are not quite rolling the way you think they ought to be, don't be surprised. I think people sort of value a little bit more relaxation than than the super high-pressure work world. Maybe that's a little bit of old Mexico creeping into new Mexico. I would say so. Yeah. In Mexico, this is definitely what people call the manana attitude. So that is definitely crept up into New Mexico, well, or was instilled in New Mexico hundreds of years ago. So, Katrina, red or green chili peppers? Oh, definitely green chili. All right. Thanks for your green call. Chili. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Now. Bye. I'm speaking with Zora O'Neill, and she writes the Moon Guides to New Mexico and a companion guide covering the major stops, Santa Fe, Taos, and Albuquerque. Zora, when I, when I page through your book and listen to these people calling in, and, and when I think about New Mexico, it really does seem a world apart right here in our own country. I definitely agree. Uh, I had originally written an introduction to the book that said something along those lines, something along those lines like you might not feel like you're in the United States and... Maybe that's not the best way to put it, but you definitely feel uh, like you're in a different time zone, in a different slice of history. I think a lot of people in the United States don't realize how heavy the Spanish colonial influence was because it's felt only in a few small parts of the United States. And that changes everything. And then the fact that you're sort of in a lot of New Mexico, way up in the mountains and hidden away from everything, it's it's wonderful and isolated and feels like, yeah, Maybe even a different planet. <laughs> well, when you go to Roswell, maybe even a different planet. But you've cer- <laughs> exactly, you've certainly and got express flights. <laughs> you've got all the nat- yeah, you've got all the natural wonders of the Southwest, uh, but you've got that real intense sort of cultural and historical and artistic sort of mix, and uh, couple that with a nice spicy local cuisine, and you've got reason for a, a special vacation right here in our own country. Zora O'Neill, thank you for being with us. We've been talking about New Mexico. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Great, thank you. Melly Saval helped show me what a fascinating country Turkey is, and she joins us from time to time to teach us about her homeland. In an age when most political leaders are held in pretty low esteem, we wanted to find out from Melly why the Turkish people still revere the founder of their republic more than seven decades after his death. Here's a conversation we recorded about why Ataturk remains more than just a historical figure to the people of Turkey. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves, and right now we're traveling in Turkey. I have a good friend and fellow tour guide with me, Melika Saval, who's flown in from Turkey. Meli has led tours and been a tour guide in Turkey for 35 years. She wrote the book on Ephesus. When you go to one of my favorite ancient sites in the entire Mediterranean, people will be reading the book Meli wrote on Ephesus. Meli has led tours uh, with me for 10 years, and now she does special theme tours around Turkey and tours far-reaching in the eastern reaches of the uh, Turkish cultural region as far east as Mongolia. Meli, great to have you here. It's great to be here, Rick. We all know about Turkey, and Turkey, what, is the size of California with 60 million people, 99% Muslim, uh, trying to get into the European Union, making great strides economically, and uh, quite a model for moderate Islamic nation, I would say. Uh, Is that all fair? Well, we don't like to be called Islamic country because we don't want to know whose religion is what. So i rather to be called Democratic Republic, and that's what it says on our constitution. Now, you are a big fan of a man named Kemal Ataturk. Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. Yes, yes. and he's the father of Turkey. Give us just a quick background on what he accomplished. Ataturk had put an end to the Ottoman rule, which has been ruling our land for 700 years. Ataturk trusted in the Turks that we can, with no weapons, get rid of all the European allies who were trying to invade Turkey in the 20s. And the most important thing was he established a secular republic, and in 10 years, he had created the reforms which made Turkey into a modern country. So coming into World War I, it's fair to say Turkey was a medieval sort of a country with Ottoman old school empire. And then you have this real modern, democratic, secular leader, a strong arm man, 
who came in and, and literally is the father of modern Turkey that dates back only to the 1920s, so still in the living memory of a lot of Turkish people. And he was so committed to a secular nation that he actually, I understand, prohibited anybody from going to churches or mosques or synagogues for a few years until they were educated, or what's the deal there? Until they were educated, so they will not be brainwashed by fundamentalism in the name of religion. So he so, was not against religion. He was not against religion, but he was against using religion for fundamentalist reasons and for politics. So he wanted us to get educated. Now, I was walking through a village in eastern Turkey with Meli, and there was a stadium filled with high school students, and I vividly remember them thrusting their fists up in the air, screaming, we are a secular nation. 400 of these kids, all at the same time, screaming, we are a secular nation in their sports stadium. And I asked Meli, what's going on here? Can you explain what, that would have, what was going on? Well, secularity is very important for us because geographically Turkey is surrounded with countries where secularity has not been their achievement. And the end result, using 1,400-year-old rules of this religion, of course, cannot be applied to modern day. And we have uh, serious problems on women rights, on human rights, on international relations. So we were able to avoid all those medieval mentality by establishing secularity, dividing state from religion. So in Turkey, the separation of mosque and state is just as precious as the separation of church and state is in the United States. Absolutely. But there is one other thing that Ataturk had accomplished. He gave us sense of nationalism rather than ethnic identity, rather than sectoral identity, rather than gender identity. We are a Turk in Turkey. And that's going back to French Revolution. If French Revolution introduced as an enlightenment nationality, that's what we have acquired. So we don't want to see the world being divided into small ethnic or religious groups. That is very dangerous. That's going back before French Revolution. So you're a modern, proud Turk. Yes, I am. And are you a person of faith? Of course. So you're Muslim? I'm Muslim. Okay. So that's not a contradiction. No. Is most of Turkey Muslim and practicing Muslim? Most of Turkey is Muslim. What percent would you say? Probably 99%. But in your constitution, you have a clause that says if religious groups take over the government, the military is deputized to take control and reassert That the is secular. not in our constitution, but that is on our culture. And we have 100% confidence in our military that they are backing up our democracy. So you really so, are happy if your military takes over if things are going into a no, theocracy way? I would be happy that we would not allow theocracy to take over, but I hope it will never be necessary because every time military takes over, there is democratic problems, of course. But if I need to choose, and I hope this will not be misunderstood, if I need to choose a military coup over theocracy, reluctantly, I will choose military coup. Is that unusual in Turkey, or would you say most Tur no, Turkish people would No, I think Turkish people would go for that. Interesting. Now, I remember you told me once when you were a young, a young girl, you worried you'd never fall in love with a man because you loved Ataturk so much. Yes, I think I've passed that, but I still love Ataturk in a wonderful way. There's an incredible love for Ataturk in Turkey that a lot of Americans don't realize. Lots of love and respect. And a great way to get an appreciation of Ataturk is go to Ankara and to his mausoleum yes. in the Associated Museum. People still see Ataturk in the clouds? We do. We do, absolutely. Every year in the eastern part of Turkey, there is a mountain which at a certain time of the day casts shadow of the portrait of Ataturk, and we get millions of people to see the shadow of that mountain. The father and of modern the Turkey. The father of modern Turkey. Who really muscled Turkey out of the Middle Ages and into the modern world in the 1920s. Yes, we're very proud of him, and we're very proud of ourselves because he had confidence in us, and we proved that he was right. I've read that people cannot say bad things about Ataturk. Yes, you're right. We cannot, by law, 
ridicule or belittle Atatürk. We love him, respect him so much that we don't want to be harassed on that. And you know what's so interesting to me is, much as that seems hard to just accept as a modern free person that somebody says you can't insult somebody, I think that Turks go with that. I mean, it's not a real problem because when you really know Ataturk, you've got to realize he is one of the super statesmen of the 20th century in the whole world. He is a super statesman. That's why we call him the father of the Turks. Ataturk means father of the Turks. And we who love democracy, who love freedom of speech, really do not mind if we ban from saying bad things to Ataturk. How would you say something good about Ataturk in Turkish? What's a good phrase about that? Ataturk çok seviyorum. What does that mean? I love Ataturk. Say that again in Turkish. Ataturk'ü çok seviyorum. Beautiful. Meli Saval, thank you very much for sharing your love of your nation, and it is so exciting as a traveler to be able to experience Turkey. Please do come to Turkey and enjoy my Turkey. If you happen to be in Istanbul on November 10th, you'll witness a uniquely Turkish observance. It's a tradition for people to stop what they're doing for a minute or two at 9.05 a.m. to observe the time that the founder of the Turkish Republic, Ataturk, died back in 1938. Along the Galata Bridge in Istanbul, the honking of traffic is replaced for a few minutes by a mournful chorus of horns and sirens from boats out in the harbor. Traffic comes to a halt, and pedestrians stop in their tracks, some with a hand over their heart, as the entire Turkish nation observes the moment in their annual commemoration of their beloved Ataturk. The tribute you're hearing now happens every November 10th at exactly 9.05 a.m. in Istanbul. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Kurt Conan at KPBS in San Diego and our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in Manhattan for their studio help today. Production help also comes from Sarah McCormick, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Listen again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe, researching and writing guidebooks. His now classic Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for Istanbul, Athens, and every other corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.